one of the first phrases that was used was that this is the hardest paleomagnetic project that's ever been devised. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello and welcome back to The Cosmic Cast. I'm John Panny Fisher. I'm joined here as per usual with the lovely Tom Harvey. Hello. And the fantastic Marissa Lowe. Hello. And this week, all the way from Cambridge, we're joined by Rich Taylor. How's it going? Hello. You're in uh, Cambridge as a research fellow, is that right? That's correct. Uh, so what, how would you describe yourself? As a metamorphic petrologist? As an experimental petrologist? Uh, I would say most, most of my research is uh, to do with geochronology. Right, okay. And, and most of that geochronology is specialised in, in metamorphic rocks. Okay, because you seem to have quite a, when I was having a, a brief browse of your publication uh, list earlier, you seem to have quite a diverse bunch of publications uh, and a diverse bunch of research interests. Yes, that's true. Me, almost everything that I've been involved in has some element of uranium-led geochronology involved mm-hmm. in it. Uh, but I've now, uh, both in the UK and in Australia, been involved in a number of different projects, and they've all had their their own sort of specific ideas involved with them. Some of which is more mainstream geology, things like metamorphic petrology, and and also to do with things like ore deposits, mm-hmm. and uh, and most recently to do with paleomagnetism. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. So uh, so you were at Cambridge. We mentioned you spent some time in Australia. That's correct. Yeah. So I so I did my my PhD at Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and when I finished that in two thousand and nine. I got uh, offered a chance to to work in a lab uh, in Western Australia to to work in what's called the Shrimp Lab, which is one of the, the sort of the big geochronology labs in the, in the world at the, the Shrimp Lab in Western Australia, and and that was uh, a technician role rather than a research role, but gave me the opportunity to to have a bit of an adventure and and, and see a different part of the world. So yeah, I was awesome. uh, I then lived in Western Australia for for about eight years after that, doing both that role and and then and then research roles following that. Wow! So how come you moved back to the UK? Uh, family reasons mostly so uh so my wife is english as well we actually we met at, at university and uh we had our first child while we were living living out in australia and uh it sort of it, it became obvious that we, we were leaning towards moving back to the uk for yeah. for, for domestic reasons so so when yeah. an opportunity came up and this opportunity came up at cambridge we we sort of jumped at it and and, and moved back home yeah that's really cool i think it's that's such a nice thing that you can do in sort of the, the academic world that you can just move to another country for an extended period like that that's really exciting yes uh, to a certain extent i think that's true like it's it's a very nice life i would say um particularly you know what we call postdoctoral roles so yeah. sort of short-term contracts where if you're willing to move there's lots of those in in lots of different parts of the world and and you could take advantage of that uh to be a, a kind of adventure but then you know obviously eventually life catches up with you a bit and you want to you want to settle down yeah. and then once you've picked a place to live it, it, it can then yeah. It has an element of stress to it because once you want to stay put, obviously yeah. there are there are less jobs around. But uh, yeah. but no, it's uh, it's definitely uh, definitely a good lifestyle. Yeah. So why is it called the shrimp lab? So it's called a shrimp because it looks like a shrimp. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's entirely true. <laughs> there, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of sea creature jokes associated with those labs. So the shrimp um, is a, a SIMS instrument, so a secondary iron mass spectrometer. And uh, the the shrimp acronym stands for a sensitive high resolution iron microprobe, mm-hmm. and so uh-huh. that was a, a research project at, at the ANU, so uh, the Australian National University, uh, through the 80s, mm-hmm. and uh, and then became a, a commercially available instrument uh, after that. So the lab that I worked in had had the first yeah. commercial shrimp lab, which was installed in the in the early 90s, and that instrument, the shrimp, it has been. The, the workhorse uranium-led instrument around, around the world now where those instruments are installed for for a long time since the 90s. So. Mm-hmm. 
That is a fantastic acronym, isn't it? It is. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of other jokes in there as well. So some of the first software to process the data from that was called Krill. Oh, <laughs> um, brilliant. The, uh, the data files that came off the instrument, the original ones were called prawn files, <laughs> which I'm, I'm reliably informed was uh, playing retrospectively around with numbers. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if that's a, a, a sort of apocryphal tale, but, uh, but that, that, that's what I've been told. So there's, yeah, there's, there's a number of, uh, I think even the software that, that processes it now is called Squid. Mm -hmm. And so there's like, yeah, everything involved yeah. in it is some sort of in-joke. In yeah. That's fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Did you say it was shrimp shapes as well? Well, is it like a curved <laughs> building or uh, so it's it's a big instrument so it's a it's what we call a, a doubly focusing mass spectrometer uh, so it has a magnet uh, which is very very large and uh, and uh, another what's called an electrostatic analyzer which is uh, sort of a big curved energy filter and th those two bits of the instrument are both um, over a meter in their sort of arc of radius so the whole instrument itself has a flight path that's something like eight meters long or something and, and it fits in a kind of u-shaped curve so it does it does look a little bit like a, a, a curled up crustacean of some kind but uh but it's a big instrument it does take up a, a significant amount of space cool i mean that must be quite exciting working in such a pioneering lab like that i guess so how how hands-on were you in terms of um operating and sort of fixing things and so that first role that I took on when, when I moved to Perth, working in the shrimp lab, as I said, it, it was kind of a technical role. And so my, my job there was keeping the instruments working. So they required maintenance every week. So stripping certain parts of it down and, and uh, cleaning them and putting it all back together. Uh, it also involved setting up the instrument on a, a daily basis for people's research and, um, and making sure that you know it, it, was, it was operating in a way that was getting people uh, the, the data that they needed to, co to collect and, and as high quality data as possible. It involved preparing samples to, and teaching people how to prepare samples mm -hmm. to, to put in that instrument. But it was, it was a, a fascinating lab. So the, the shrimp lab there in, in Western Australia at, at Curtin University, which is where I was based, um, has been famous for analyzing lunar samples mm -hmm. uh, and also probably most famously uh, zircon grains from from the jack hills which yeah. is way out in the middle of nowhere in western australia but the reason it's so famous is because the individual mineral grains from the jack hills are the oldest things that we have of our planet so you know about four point well the oldest ones are about 4.4 billion years old so yeah. right from the beginning of earth history that's very cool uh so did you have much experience doing this kind of work before you started there as a technician say from your phd or before that uh, yes that's a good question so uh, and and the answer is yes my my phd at edinburgh was uh, in itself quite an interesting project. So I was doing an experimental petrology project and uh, experimental petrology involves essentially making fake rocks to understand how, how real rocks themselves function. So I was um, making these synthetic analogs for, for, for metamorphic rocks to look at how the minerals grow in those metamorphic rocks, specifically the minerals that we use for geochronology. So the minerals that contain a little bit of uranium that we can use for uranium lead dating, so I was growing sort of fake versions of those minerals to look at how they grow in relation to other minerals themselves. And that didn't just get me involved in uranium lead dating, but specifically to be able to analyze those samples got me involved in this particular type of analysis. So mm -hmm. SIMS analysis uh, using a different set of instruments, not, not a shrimp instrument specifically, but, but instruments that are very similar to that and design, designed in a similar way. I was using those at Edinburgh to, to analyze these synthetic rocks, uh, yeah. the rocks themselves. So I did 
having not actually been specifically involved in uranium-led dating, I had I had a lot of experience on the, the type of instrument itself. Yeah, I guess uh, we've not really talked on this podcast too much about uranium-led dating before. It might be worth talking about why it's such a, uh, a useful and important geochronometer, particularly for metamorphic, I guess. It's very robust, isn't it, I suppose, to... Yes, that's right. And so, so uranium lead dating really focuses on on what we call accessory minerals. So there's a lot of major rock forming minerals that everyone's very familiar with. So quartz and feldspars and garnet and things like that. That the, the, the sort of visible minerals that we see when we look at a rock sample, but but hidden away in our rocks, there's there's what we call accessory minerals, which are usually tiny. Um, they they're quite often not visible to the naked eye. But they, they soak up all the elements that, that don't fit into those those main rock forming minerals and and most importantly some of these accessory minerals uh, take up a little bit of uranium and so one of the ones that we use the most is the, the mineral zircon and uh, the mineral zircon takes up a little bit of uranium in its structure when it forms uh, but it doesn't take up any lead and so w- when it first grows it's got uranium lead uh, it's got uranium in it but no lead at all and then over time it as that uranium decays the amount of lead in the zircon starts to increase and we can then use that uranium lead ratio to work out how old the zircon grain is and then sort of by proxy we can use that to work out how old the rocks are or any geological processes mm-hmm. uh, that happened and uh, and one of the most Im- the sort of key aspects is that zircon itself is what we call an ultra stable mineral so it's physically very tough and chemically very tough so it's very hard to get rid of so once it's grown and recorded a geological event it tends to survive even from the very beginnings of of earth history even from places like the jack hills where it's recording you know the very beginning of time as far as as far as the earth is concerned they they're tough enough to survive all the way from those sort of depths of of deep time because i guess the jack hill zircons are in sediments aren't they they are that's right so so, as I said, the, the record of, of, of zircon grains from the Jack Hills goes back to 4.4 billion years old, but the rocks at the Jack Hills are only 3 billion years old. So they're sediments. They're, they're, if you assume that we can use modern analogues to interpret old rocks, then it looks like a, a river delta or something like that. Uh, but that river delta sediment is full of the eroded remnants of, of other rocks, um, as you'd expect from a, from a sedimentary rock. And by using the zircons that are in there to... to date how old those eroded rocks were we can see that the the original igneous rocks so the hard rocks that were eroded into that sediment are, are far older than the jack hill sediment itself and are in fact from rocks that, that just don't exist anymore they've been entirely eroded away and the only evidence for them is is in the yeah. jack hill sediment yeah i mean it's really cool to think that these sort of processes can preserve such old rock so th- so the jack hills is is unique in terms of its record of the early yeah. earth so if we imagine all of Earth history, going back four and a half billion years, the, the very earliest period of Earth history we refer to as the Hadean. So it's it's supposed to be like Hades, uh, the, the god of the underworld, surrounded by fire and brimstone. And so this, the first 500 million years of, of Earth history, the Hadean doesn't, doesn't have any rocks that actually exist from that time period. So the only evidence we have is from zircon grains from places like the Jack Hills. And Within the Jack Hill sediment, about 10% of the zircon grains are older than 4 billion years, so, so come from the, the Hadean. And in all of the other old rocks around the world, there's a handful of zircon grains that are older than 4 billion years. So 
there's almost nowhere else on the planet that we can go and really do any science that involves interrogating this this first 500 million years of earth history and so yeah. the jack hills is the only place we can go and the only place we can get you know isotopic geochemical or in the case of what i've been doing recently paleomagnetic data from 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 that time what yeah. is it about that location that makes it such a unique that's a very good question and and something that a lot of people argue over so some people would say there's a preservation bias so mm -hmm. that there were maybe lots of places that had uh old crustal material so the idea is you, you had to have formed some crust to be able to get zircon grains and you know we, we're lucky at the jack hills that those zircon grains got incorporated into a sediment that still exists mm -hmm. uh, so some people argue that there were lots of places like this and we've just been unlucky and those those remnants weren't preserved and the fact that there's you know, a, a couple of zircon grains here and there from places like China and South Africa, other places where there are old rocks, suggest that might be true. And it's just, right. we've just been unlucky in how well they've been preserved. Mm. Whereas other people say that, in fact, the early earth is very different and there probably weren't very many places that we were producing crust. Mm -hmm. And so that this actually just happens to be a unique location. There's one right. of the few places there was any crust at mm -hmm. this very earliest part of our history. And so it's not the only place that it's therefore been preserved. Okay. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, as you said, as you mentioned, that segues quite nicely then to some of the work you've been doing about paleomagnetism. That's true. So there's there's a big question and a lot of big arguments that have been going on uh, for several years about how we can investigate Earth's magnetic field and, and how it began. And this is a, a, a big controversial subject. So our magnetic field is, is essentially a big protective shield around our planet. Um, so it deflects really intense solar radiation uh, from the sun around our planet, which protects things like our atmosphere. And so a lot of people would argue that in order to have had life originating on Earth on a habitable planet, which is what we have, uh, to have a habitable planet with an atmosphere with oxygen in it, that atmosphere must have been protected from quite early on in Earth history. Um, but also to, to actually form and maintain a, a magnetic field, certain things must have been going on in the interior of the Earth in terms of what the core looked like and, and the processes that were going on in there. So people just uh, interested not only in habitable, habitable planet aspect, but also just in terms of early Earth geodynamic processes are really interested in, mm -hmm. in what that magnetic field looked like. And as I sort of uh, touched upon earlier, the further we go back in time, the, the less rocks that we have that we can actually go and look at. And, and also in terms of doing paleomagnetic work, the more likely it is that the, the rocks themselves have been altered, which would alter the magnetic record as well. And so recently there's been this work trying to use zircon grains, uh, which might have magnetic inclusions within them. So the zircon isn't magnetic, but it might be protecting uh, some magnetic inclusions that, that were growing in the same rock. And because it's this really stable mineral, it's able to protect them like armor. But also because we can date the zircon, we can say, well, if they've got magnetic information that we can measure and we can get a uranium lead age out of the zircon, we can track directly the magnetic information and put a, a, a geological age on that, that magnetic information. And then you can add in the extra aspect that the zircon record from places like the Jack Hills is even older than any of the rocks that we have on our planet. And therefore we can actually push our information about the magnetic field as, as far back through time as possible. And that's been the, the, the challenge of the project that I've been involved in. But that sounds also difficult because I guess zircons are small to start off with. So when you're talking about small magnetic inclusions, these must be absolutely tiny. So yeah, so when, uh, so when I talk a bit later on, that one of the first things that came up about this project, uh, one of the first phrases that was used was that this is the hardest paleomagnetic project that's ever been devised. So 
Uh, for a start, we don't know if there's a magnetic field right. that far back in time, so mm-hmm. we're looking for something that, wow. that might not be there. Yeah. Uh, the zircon grains, so they're, as I said, they're accessory minerals, so they're not just a mineral rather than a rock, but they're also some of the smallest minerals that we, we yeah. look at for, for research. So even just handling those and putting them in a magnetometer to get the magnetic information is very difficult. And then the magnetic signals that they harbor as just a, a single grain with maybe a, a, a few inclusions of, of magnetic material are some of the smallest magnetic signals that have ever been tried to be measured. And so all of this work that people uh, have been doing recently to look at these single mineral grains and, and measure magnetic information has come about through the use of a new type of magnetometer, which is able to deal with these incredibly tiny samples and incredibly tiny signals. And those those are called a a squid microscope, another another <laughs> sea creature analogy, but that's a, a, a scanning quantum interference device. Uh, it's a very fancy name, but essentially it's, it's a magnetometer. It does the magnetic experiments, so the paleomagnetic uh, intensity measurements in the same way that the old magnetic... Mm-hmm. Uh, the old magnetometers would have would have measured a rock sample, but it's able to do it on these very very yeah. tiny signals. That's really interesting. That's so, so cool. That's, that's, that's <laughs> what sort of minerals is it? Is the zircon trapping these tiny magnetic? Is it magnetite? Or? So, so for the sake of argument, what we would generally be looking at is is magnetite. That's what's going to give you the the sort of the strongest magnetic signal for any sort of given terrestrial magnetic inclusion. But there are lots mm-hmm. of other minerals as well that, that might have magnetic signals in there. Um, but obviously the ideal magnetic recorders in terms of magnetite are what we would call single domain magnetites. Mm-hmm. So that means uh, they've got a single magnetic domain in, ter- in, in their structure, which generally means they're going to be very small. So in right. fact, when, we, when we're talking about magnetic inclusions within something like Zircon, we're actually probably looking at an ensemble of thousands of, of nanoscale mm-hmm. magnetites that have almost... Right. If you imagine you had a magma chamber with... Uh, that started to crystallize magnetite within it. Mm-hmm. And then the zircon grew and, and, and captured that magnetite. You would hope it was almost collecting this sort of magnetic dust. And that would then give it the chance of capturing a very strong magnetic signal. Because if you've got nanoscale magnetic particles, they are very stable. So they're very hard to change through geological time. So right, it's right. actually better to have tiny magnetic particles than it is to have yeah. great big magnetite inclusions. Mm-hmm. So ma- metaphor- metamorphism or anything like that won't, in theory, affect any of this. So... There are two big problems with <laughs> doing paleomagnetic work as you go back in time. Yeah. One is reheating the samples. Oh, right, yeah. And yeah. that's very hard to, uh, to deal with. Obviously, the rocks or the rocks that the, the minerals we're looking at formed in are billions of years old. So they've gone through a huge amount of geological history since they are formed. And if they heat up uh, subsequent to their formation, if they heat up to a high enough temperature it can reset that magnetic information. So we call that the Curie point. So if you've got magnetite that formed, that was cooling in a magma chamber, for example, if it gets heated back up above its Curie point, which for magnetite is around 580 degrees, that magnetic information would be totally reset when it mm-hmm. cooled. So that's one problem. So we have to look and find ways of convincing ourselves these rocks haven't been reheated. The other problem is fluid alteration. Mm-hmm. And so th- and this is a really big problem for old rocks. So you know, over billions of years, we can... We can assess whether or not rocks have been reheated, but there's going to be so much tectonic activity and yeah. any fluids that are in the crust, which is yeah. you know totally expected, will reset that magnetic information. And that's really where this project sort of excels, uh, or this type of work excels, because by using magnetic inclusions within other minerals, 
and this idea of armoring mm -hmm. the magnetic mm -hmm. inclusions, it means that we can kind of take that fluid alteration out of the equation mm -hmm. or, or we should right. be able to. It gets much more complicated than that, which uh, <laughs> is part of the work that I've been doing. But the, the idea is it's protected from fluids. And then yeah. the only thing we have to worry about is reheating because yeah. because that information can't have been, been reset by, yeah. by crustal fluids. That's really cool. But so I guess, it, so in conclusion then, you found evidence of a magnetic field in the Hadean. Well, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to give the game away too much, but um, we have uh, we've done what nobody else has done before, which is to demonstrate exactly what the magnetic particles within these very ancient zircon grains look like. But the story then gets very complicated, yeah. and 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 part of that problem is um, to do with radiation damage. Mm -hmm. So the zircon grains themselves are they contain uranium. That's why we can use them for uranium lead dating. But that uranium very gradually damages the, the crystal lattice itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and for most of the things that we worry about, so if we're doing uranium lead dating, for example, that, that actually doesn't have a dramatic effect. It means that um, the lead that's obviously no longer bound by the crystal lattice that comes from the decay of uranium, it's sitting in an environment that, that's no longer perfectly crystalline and it can move around to some extent, but it generally doesn't go very far. And when it does, we, we can tell. And, and so in terms of uranium lead dating, this, this fact that we've got very tiny amounts of radiation damage in the grains is, is, is not very important. It's just an inherent part of, of working with the material. It's why we can use it as a geochronometer. But when it comes to the elements that shouldn't be in there, so things like iron that can form the, the magnetite that's important to get our magnetic information, suddenly the tiny amounts of radiation damage that are in there become very important. And that's because we're now interested in in nanoscale particles so our, our, our problems and our processes go from being micro scale a sort of normal scale of dealing with our geochemistry to a whole to a whole new level of, of these sort of nanoscale to atomic scale processes and that adds in a whole level of complexity that makes it very hard to interpret what what the magnetic information means and mm -hmm. and the the upshot of the work that we've been doing is is that it's actually well it's very hard to prove that the information the magnetic information in the grains is primary mm. and it's almost certain that you can demonstrate that it is secondary and that the magnetic information is is much later than the zircon grain itself so this sort of holy grail of of using magnetic information inside a mineral you can use for uranium lead dating has this total flip side where because you can use it for uranium lead dating you can develop microstructures that end up hosting magnetite that's much much later than the, the zircon grain itself so so the whole project has been that sort of first demonstration to take this big arm waving subject area where it's like you know we want to look at how the magnetic field formed and how old is the magnetic field and we're going to look at this earliest period in earth history uh, and what we've been doing is like taking all these arm waving arguments and actually doing the hard science mm -hmm. and saying this is what you've been measuring and, and and this is what that information actually means and it's probably not what you thought it was mm -hmm. <laughs> but then Inside or outside of geology, are there any other methods or techniques you could use for finding out this information about Earth's ancient magnetic field? That's a really good question. And and so I would say no. Okay. <laughs> could you and, go to the moon, I wonder? Oh, so the moon's got its own magnetic history. John, that's history. your answer for everything, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, so, with good reason as well. Yeah. It means great. So the reason the reason that this project is, was so neat in the way that it was set up is because we're we're taking almost the only material you could look at to 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 go this far back in time, and and so there really isn't anywhere else to look for that that magnetic information. And so what people have done up to this point is to look 
at the magnetic information hosted with inside other minerals. So not zircon, so which we can get a, an age from. But if we look at magnetic inclusions in, say, quartz and feldspar, which there was some pioneering work done sort of within the last decade, then we can use some of the same assumptions. So we can say those magnetic inclusions are protected, but we then have to go to some secondary information to work out the age of the quartz and feldspar grains because we can't get an age of those directly. And and so people have, have done that and said there was some, some pioneering work done in the US on one of the first squid microscopes of so these sensitive magnetometers where they were able to push back information about the magnetic field uh, into the Archeans up to uh, about three billion years ago or a bit older than that um, by using those inclusions. But 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 really the, the dream was to be able to use this oldest material on the planet and, and said once once you started to do that, there were these other complexities that arose. And and to try and fill in the gap in between those two studies and say there just aren't enough rocks that, that you can look mm -hmm. at that, that are suitable enough to try and do this kind of work on. They've all been strongly altered or all metamorphosed and reheated. So. Mm. Why, why do you say let's go to the moon, John? Other than you know, <laughs> oh, ve you know vested I, I, interest. I guess I was just thinking that um, you know if you could look if to see if there's a magnetic field or an early magnetic field on the moon, it might give you an indication as to how magnetic fields start at that sort of time period, and you could then so apply that to the Earth. Yeah, know. so this is a big field of research. So the uh, the project that we've been doing at Cambridge, which is this sort of characterization project and working out why these things are magnetic in the first place, has a, a sort of sister project, if you like, being done at MIT in the mm -hmm. US. And they're really the, the, the paleomagnetic team that's mm -hmm. part of this sort of very big project. And a lot of their work is to do with um, early solar system mm -hmm. magnetism. So how you can attract particles to each other in the first place in the early solar system to start to produce like the, the building blocks of the solar system. So things we now see as meteorites and asteroids. Um, and how the, the magnetic field in the solar system evolved. And, and, and part of that group is also looking at how the magnetic field on, on the moon mm -hmm. evolved as well. And, and, and obviously the, the moon, as far as, as far as we know, has its own kind of really unique history in association with the Earth in terms of sort of giant impacts, which obviously is a significant reheating event and sort of almost total destruction event. And, and, and so that, that's, that's got its, its own unique magnetic record mm -hmm. that, again, has its own very patchy set of rock samples that we're trying yeah. to build these big interpretations from. Yeah. That sounds really cool. So this is a quite so this this Peleomag project's been quite a recent thing you've been working on then. Yes. So as I said, most of my background has been on problems associated with uranium lead dating and trying to do a better job of understanding uranium lead age information from from minerals like zircon. Yeah. And to help us understand the geological record. Basically. Yeah. And 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 most of most of what I've been involved in is trying to do that when it gets really hard. So I've been looking at projects to do with the extremes of crustal metamorphism so when rocks have just got really hot and that starts to make them misbehave in a number of geochemical ways and, and uranium lead dating can get quite hard mm. or rocks that are very old uh, and and then you start to have other problems associated with how to interpret uranium lead ages or both so very old rocks that have got very hot and so so my expertise is in difficult problems with geochronometers and that that's how i got pulled into this project at cambridge mm. a couple of years ago um to sort of use my expertise in geochronology, um, accessory minerals, and and how to do things when they get difficult in terms of microanalysis and understanding the information and, and linking that to something which I'd never thought about before at all, yeah. which is how magnetic information yeah. is recorded in anything. I, I knew nothing about that when I started <laughs> yeah. in this project. That's cool. So would you say uranium lead is your favorite geochronometer? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
So, I mean, Zircon, which we've talked about a lot already, is, you know, that, that's really the workhorse of doing uranium-led yeah. work. And it's it's one of the main reasons we have an understanding of anything to do with the ancient Earth at all. I mean, it's one of our, our, our main um, ancient geochronometers alongside um, argon dating. Um, but in terms of the sheer volume of data and in interpreting how plate tectonics works and supercontinent cycles and how early Earth crust was formed and things like that then then uranium lead dating zircon uh, uranium lead dating in zircon is really yeah. why we know all about that yeah. um but a lot of the stuff that i've been doing more recently is is looking at uranium lead dating and other minerals um that respond to very different processes so we have other minerals uh such as monazite and titanite mm -hmm. that respond to both high temperature processes like zircon but also respond to, to low temperature fluid processes in the crust as well mm -hmm. so we can get this huge wealth of information about about what's happening in in the earth crust from from everything to do with you know high temperature crustal processes to how we form ore deposits and things like that and so definitely i've, I've always been uranium lead person it's by far the best <laughs> geochronometer and there's nothing else that really comes close in terms of understanding the earth but uh but there are lots of different minerals telling us lots of different things not just zircon yeah is, is that the question you ask when you meet new people john You're like <laughs> yes. hi what's your, what's your name what's your favorite geochronometer <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a well, very good question so i mean one thing i think would be really cool to do so on, on uh, i don't know if the listeners are aware but on twitter there's always a mineral cup where people yes. do these world cups for minerals i I'd, I'd want to do one for isotope systems i think that'd be uh, <laughs> Team niche but uh <laughs> yeah. i suppose with extreme metamorphism there must be some cool opportunities for field work for sample collection yes that's true so um so the the project that i was involved in uh we had we had three field localities one of which i specifically worked in and so uh, that was my particular area was in south india uh -huh. uh, which i'd actually worked on since i was doing my phd so I, as i said before i did this experimental petrology phd where i made made rocks in the lab but uh, I, I went to South India during that time to, to find the sort of equivalent rocks to the things mm -hmm. that I was trying to create and have this, this parallel study with, with, with how natural samples behave. And so that, that's a good example of, of some rocks that have got pretty hot. So they, they come from not very deep in the crust particularly, so sort of normal mid to lower crust levels, but they've been up over 900 degrees. Uh, so lots and lots of melting happens in those samples. And we're at the point where we're above what we call the closure temperature for a lot of our isotopic systems. So really something like uranium lead in zircon, for example, um, the, the diffusion of lead out of that zircon can happen at really high temperatures. And, and then once you get below a certain temperature that the information gets locked in and that, and that boundary is, is at about 900 degrees. So if you're below 900 degrees, you're pretty safe with uranium lead dating in terms of metamorphism. It's, 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 it's fairly easy to interpret or, or understand the processes. And once you get places like South India, where you're a bit hotter than that, it can start to get it start to get much harder. The other two localities uh, that were involved in that project were um, much more extreme examples of crustal metamorphism. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to go to those areas myself. But one of those is the Eastern Ghats, uh, which is also in India, and that has uh, examples of rocks from similar depths that get up to about a thousand degrees. So really, temperatures that there aren't a lot of tectonic models that we use to understand the Earth that explain crustal metamorphism to those kind of temperatures, um, and that, that that's got some unique mineral assemblages, for example. So we start to see um, high-grade metamorphic minerals like uh, saffrine, and even in some cases uh, a mineral called a sumalite, which are, are, are not classic metamorphic minerals, but are oh, real yeah. indicators of very high temperatures. Cool. Mm -hmm. And the final area was Enderby Land in. Uh, Antarctica. Oh wow! And in fact, Very the cool. samples that we used um, 
to, to do the work in Enderby land were, were collected over field seasons between 1979 and 1981. Oh, so wow. it's actually been very hard for people to get funding to go back to those kind mm, of places. Yeah, I'll bet. What, unique yeah. suite of rocks? Yeah. So, and in fact, my, my supervisor from, from my PhD, even though I didn't work on those rocks when I was working with him, he was one of the people that went on those field seasons back, oh, in, the, back cool. in the late 70s mm. and early 80s and, and collected those samples, that's which was pretty, pretty daring stuff at the time <laughs> in terms of getting out into <laughs> a place that's that's really not just extreme levels of metamorphism, but yeah. uh, but uh, pretty extreme places to go and do field geology yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the final question we normally ask everyone is, if you could be doing something completely different to what you're doing now, inside academia or outside of it, what would you want to do? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's probably a hard question because you're already probably doing one of the coolest things in geology <laughs> anyway. So... Um, so I would say one of the things, I mean, I've, it's 15 years since I started my PhD. And so I've been doing, you know, a lot of the same stuff for a, for a lot of the same time, for, for a lot of that time. But there are certainly aspects to the kind of work that I do that I don't really get to do very much, which I would mm -hmm. like to do more of. Um, so I found particularly fascinating recently sort of uh, 3D imaging of samples, um, particularly outside of, of geology. So 3D imaging of like biological samples mm. and particularly biomechanical stuff. Uh, so, so I would really like to, I guess, if I could, if I could do anything as a, as a scientist, um, I think being involved in, in those kind of applications that have, you know, real implications for people's lives, that, mm -hmm. that would be really nice. Um, obviously not something you can leap into doing biomedical science from geology. Um, I think probably if I could do anything in the world, I'd probably like to be a helicopter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that's cool. Well, Rich, thank you very much for coming on the, on the podcast. We'll put a link to your paper about paleomagnetism in the Hadean in the description box. So do check that out. Um, but in the meantime, thanks once again. And uh, we'll see you all again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.